Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit OLCC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. morning. We are going to be in Revelation 3 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, there should be a pew Bible somewhere around you if you need that as well. And if you've been with us, you've known that Brock has been taking us, walking us through the book of Revelation. And um, we've talked through the first chapter, which was the introduction to the book. And then last week, we dove into the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. And Brock talked us through the letter to the church to Ephesus. And today, we're going to hit the last letter in the series of seven letters. And we're going to hit the church at Laodicea this morning. So we're going to read this passage together. Would you just stand up and let's just read this together? This is Revelation 3, and we're going to start in verse 14. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. To the angel at the church at Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. And God, I would ask that you would open and unfold this word to us this morning. That we would see Jesus. That we would see Jesus. We have sung about him. Now let us see and hear him. We invite you to come and speak to not just the church at Laodicea, but to our Lord's Community Church. Be with us this morning. We open ourselves to you. Amen. So each of these letters to the churches are actually a prophetic message to the churches. And there are seven of them. And this, as we saw, is a very complete letter. And if you could put up that slide of the map 
um, that you see there. Each letter has a very similar thing that ha that's in it, a very similar set of elements. And we're going to see the same elements that Brock talked about last week in the church to Ephesus. We're going to see those same elements this week for Laodicea. And the first one is right to the church at Laodicea. So I wanted you to see where it was. And there's this map here. What you're looking at is the western coast of Turkey. This is a Google map of the western coast of Turkey. And if you can see that green horseshoe-shaped line, that has a dot on it for every one of the churches that we've written a letter to. And there's a green arrow there pointing over to that furthest dot. That is Ephesus, where we were last week. And if we'd gone through all the churches, we would have made our way up and around that horseshoe until we got down there to the bottom where that red arrow is, and that is Laodicea. So this is all within a very close range there in Turkey. In fact, it's so close, um, down in that far corner on the bottom left corner there of the screen, there's a blue arrow pointing to something in the ocean. That is the island of Patmos. So John was on that island and he was writing to churches that were right there on the coast. If he was able to go to the coast, he would have been right there with the churches. So we are very close to the coast there. Now, if you notice there with Laodicea, there's several purple dots sitting there with Laodicea. That's actually the cities of Hierapolis and Colossae. Hierapolis, we don't know much about, but Colossae, you've heard of, because that's the city that got the book of Colossians. And Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. In fact, at the end of the book of Colossians, it says this. Let me see if I can find it here. It says, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, See that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you, in turn, read the letter from the Laodiceans. So when Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, he said, I'm also writing to the Laodiceans. After you guys read this letter, swap letters and make sure you hear each other's letters. These cities are very close together. It'd be like saying, I sent a letter to the church in Edmond and one to the church in Oklahoma City. So after you guys read it, you swap and you read the other person's letter. That's how close this is. So we don't know what Paul wrote to the Laodiceans then, but we do know what Jesus said about 30 or 40 years later after that when he was speaking to the church at Laodicea. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. This city was pretty remarkable. If you want to switch to that next slide that has the photograph on it, this is Laodicea today. It is still a place that is full of gorgeous buildings. If we could see the whole place, it's in ruins. Obviously, nobody lives there. But if we could see the entire area, we would see two massive amphitheaters that are there. Lots of stone ruins. In fact, they estimate maybe 80 to 100,000 people lived there. It was a wealthy city. In fact, it was so wealthy that at one point it was destroyed by an earthquake. And the people in the city said to Rome, we don't need your money to rebuild the city. We've got it. We'll do it on our own. And they rebuilt their city out of their own wealth and their own riches. 
So this is a city that is a metropolis. It's not a tiny little backwater village. It's on this major trade route with going to Ephesus and the coast in one area and then up and down on the other area. Major banking, business, trade ran through this city. So with that background, you're probably already starting to see, oh, that's why Jesus said some of that stuff to them. And we'll see more of that. So the first thing he says is, write to this city. Now, he's writing to Laodicea, but Laodicea is also symbolic of many different kinds of churches throughout the ages and even today. So these letters, these seven churches in um, Western Turkey, they weren't the only churches there, obviously. Colossae was sitting right there. So these churches, you will find characteristics of these churches throughout history and throughout churches today. And we'll see that play out as well. And I also want you to remember that just because we're in the last of the letters and next week we're going to head into an entirely different vision that John had as he's looking from the viewpoint of heaven, these letters set the foundation for the entire rest of the book of Revelation. There are themes that are run, woven through here that we're going to see for all the rest of the weeks that we're in the book. So the first thing that we see is a command to write to the churches. And then the next thing that we see in each letter is Christ gives a description of who he is. There's always something that says, here's who's talking to you. And this description is, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. These descriptions of Jesus go back to chapter 1 where we saw Jesus walking among the candlesticks and the lampstands, holding the seven stars in his hand. That's where these descriptions come from. And so he's picking up characteristics in each one of these letters from those descriptions. In fact, this definition here where he says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, Jesus being described as faithful and true is something we will see throughout out Revelation as we move forward, but you're also going to see that it has something very pointed to say to the people in Laodicea, that Jesus is the faithful and true witness. In fact, that word amen, God is called the God of amen, the God of truth in Isaiah. It's the Hebrew word translated truth is amen. So not just is Jesus truth, he's faithful and true. It fleshes out who he is. So every letter then moves on after Jesus describes himself, and it talks about the condition of the church. And usually there's a commendation where Jesus is saying something like, I know who you are. I've seen your endurance. I've seen how you care about truth. I've seen that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans, I think those are the ones we talked about last week in Ephesus. So you see this where Jesus is saying, I know who you are. I see you. Here's what you're doing well. And so he says to Laodicea, let's move to the passage there. I know your deeds. And that's where he says what they're doing well. Do you see any of that up there? I know your deeds. There is nothing. There are crickets when it comes to what they're doing well. 
there is not a hint in there of, I see your faithfulness, I see your endurance, I see your patience, I see how you love the truth, I see how you test the teaching. None of that. Utter crickets. This is the only letter with crickets like that. Instead, Jesus launches straight into correction. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That is a list of words that I'm not sure that I would ever want to hear coming toward me. Connie, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. But he's already been pretty strong. That phrase there where he says, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, and I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I'm not sure why the Bible translators did it this way. Maybe they were being less messy. I don't know why they made this decision. That word, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, it's literally, I'm about to vomit you up. It's literally the word vomit. I don't think I want Jesus showing up and saying, I'm about to vomit you out. You are neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. I am about to vomit you out. I mean, that's going to get your attention. And the people are standing there and they're saying, I'm good. I am good. Got it. I've become wealthy. I'm fine. I even noticed that little phrase in there, I have become wealthy. If you have not been wealthy and you have felt the sting of that and then you become wealthy, it does feel like you're fine. There is that sense of, I'm good. I got the problem solved. And he's saying, it didn't solve anything. You are wretched, you're miserable, you're ragged. You're the kind of people who are begging out on the street corner and you don't see it because you think you're good. It is just a fact, whether it's 2,000 years ago in Laodicea or here today, that material well-being masks inner need. It just does. It makes it hard to recognize the inner condition. It's just reality. It's a reality that all of us struggle with. It's not like, oh, those were terrible people that they didn't recognize it. We can be in the same condition and it even makes it hard for other people to let us be wretched and miserable and needy and like a beggar. Um, a few years ago, I was living in Fort Worth, and um, I volunteered at a Van Cliburn piano competition um, where pianists from all over the world came for this competition. And uh, my job was in the summer heat on the TCU campus to escort musicians back and forth um, when they were ready to perform. And there were, I realized I landed as a volunteer in the middle of a whole bunch of Fort Worth women who were volunteering. 
And I'm walking back and forth in the heat, and these were the kind of women whose hair didn't frizz, their beautiful linen dresses did not wrinkle. I do not know how that's possible. I'm gasping, I'm sweating, I'm in the heat, and they just looked amazing. And they all knew each other, so they're chatting about the business adventures that are going on and the new projects so-and-so is starting and how the kids are doing in school and the house that so-and-so is building. And after a few hours of this, I realized these women have such a huge barrier between where they are and being able to admit, I'm wretched, miserable, naked, and poor, because they don't look like it. And being able to get anybody to hear the condition of your heart when you're in that place is a hard thing. And so I saw that and I thought, what a gift that Jesus shows up and says, I see you. And we're going to see that he's not condemning them, but he's saying, I see you. I see who you are. And he's coming and saying, I have counsel for you. And here's my counsel. Buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful naked and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. He's saying, I see your true condition and I want you to know I have what you need. Stop buying the stuff out there and start buying what I'm carrying. And in the description of him in Revelation 1, he was seen with all this stuff. He has a golden sash on him. His hair is blazing white. His face is white. There's fire coming out. His eyes are piercing. He can see. He is pure. He is clean. He is purified. He's carrying true wealth. And he's saying, come to me and get what you need. I have it. I have everything you need. Now, I was puzzled when I first looked at this and I said, okay, I understand lukewarm hearts, but why is Jesus starting with saying, I know your deeds, and then saying, you're lukewarm? What's up with that? And how do I get unlukewarm? I, I don't even know how to buy this stuff from Jesus. And I got to thinking, I, was, I really, I struggled with this whole deed and lukewarm thing until I finally realized, no, I do know what lukewarm deeds look like. I really actually do. There is an intricate connection between the state of what's going on inside and the thing of your deeds. So let's just say that you are an avid fan of, I don't know, maybe a sport played with a ball of some kind. Maybe there's a big game. Maybe it's happening today. And you are an avid, avid supporter of one of those teams and they get out there and they are out on that field doing lukewarm deeds yeah <laughs> what are you going to be doing lukewarm going through the motions phoning it in I'm telling you I don't even have to be much of an avid supporter and I am yelling at that team I am like you don't want to hear what I'm like. <laughs> we wouldn't put up with it. Lukewarm deeds, when we're passionate, they evoke that kind of response in us. I mean, and, and that's just a team. It's just a game. It's not even somebody you're passionately caring and fervent about. Think about a friendship that you have. 
and think about if you really, really care about this friend and they're like, eh, kind of lukewarm about so-and-so. I can take Brad or leave him. Eh. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's an insult. When you care deeply and the person is lukewarm in their deeds and they don't really show up and they break appointments and you're like, this person doesn't care. What if your spouse is full of lukewarm deeds? I can say this because I'm not married, so I don't have a spouse going, ooh, now she's getting personal. <laughs> it's easy. But what if your spouse is lukewarm? Doesn't that cut your heart? Doesn't that go in when you're full of love and a person you deeply care about is lukewarm and you want to do anything to get your attention? Side note and a PSA. Today's February 7th. Next week, February 14th, Valentine's Day. Just saying, that was your public service announcement. <laughs> I also have been in prayer times with parents who are agonizing over a lukewarm child, and I don't think I've ever seen that kind of agony anywhere else. When somebody, a parent who cares deeply, has a child who simply won't listen and is saying, I'm fine, and is headed toward destruction, that is agony that I don't think I've seen anywhere else. This is why Jesus is so passionate here. And he's saying, I'm counseling you, buy this from me. And then there is a very strong call, and it is a call to repentance. And this happens in all the letters, but this one is very strong. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. We've just heard the rebuke. He's exposing them. He's saying, I'm going to rebuke you. I'm going to expose you. I'm going to pull the curtain back and shine the light on. I discipline. So be earnest and repent. The word earnest there is the same word translated in other places as jealous. Grab onto it with all your heart. Mean it and repent. Repent. Turn. Change. Be different. Do something. Get out of this lukewarm place. Now, most of these letters at this point, have Jesus saying, I'm going to come and do something. You see what he's going to come and do there? Listen to what the other letters say that he's going to come and do. To Ephesus, he said, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Pergamum, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Thyatira, I will make those who commit adultery with Jezebel suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. Sardis, repent, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. But what does he say to Laodicea? Nothing like that. He says, it's just amazing, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. 
There's no coming like a thief in the night. There's no taking the lampstand away. Instead, Jesus is saying, here I am. Not only do I have everything you need, and I say, come to me and get it, I'm going to come to you. And all you got to do is open the door, and I'm going to come in, and I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to eat with you. You and I are going to sit down and eat. Not, I'm coming to all of our Lord's church, and I'm going to come to the Sunday morning service, which he does, but I'm coming to your house, and I'm going to sit, and I'm going to eat with you. The, I don't know, we could just go into like five minutes of silence right now and just look at the wonder of that. This is the Jesus who in chapter one said, I hold the keys of death and Hades. And he has said to other churches, I open doors. And what I open, nobody can shut. And what I shut, nobody can open. I hold the keys. The one who holds the keys and opens and shuts doors is standing outside your door and knocking and asking. And just knocking. And it's up to us. We often use this passage in an evangelism context for people who don't know God. This isn't written to people who don't know God. This is written to his people. He's coming to his people. He's standing and he's knocking the holder of the keys. And he's doing this for all of us, for us, for me, for you. I have spent a good chunk of time staring at my front door as I've been in this passage and wondering, what would it be like if Jesus were actually out there? What would I do? And so I'm going to invite you into that staring with me. So just picture your front door. Every one of you has one. Picture your front door. You're on the inside. And picture whatever you hear, whatever happens when there's somebody out there. Um, doorbell rings. Maybe an app lights up on your phone if you have a camera out there. Uh, there's knocking. There's something. Um, depending on how many people and what you have in your house, maybe a dog starts barking goes crazy. Kids start getting excited and running around because kids get excited when there's somebody coming to the door. There's somebody at the door, and it sounds different in every one of your houses. There's a doorbell, a knock, an app, something goes on. What do you do? You look to see who's there. So you use whatever method you have to look out there. Some of you look through a peephole. Some of you have a window. Some of you have a window by the side of the door. Some of you look on a camera on your app, and you see who's out there. And by this time, you're standing there at the door. Your husband or wife is there with you. And you, like, look, and you're like, I, I'm, and you turn, and you're like, it's Jesus. And they're like, no, shut up. <laughs> That's what Keisha would say. I could just hear her say that, shut up. And they're like, no, it's Jesus. You're like, it can't be. Well, you look, and you're like, it is Jesus. And the dog is going crazy, and the kids are going crazy. And you're like, it's Jesus. He wants to come in. And you're like, I'm not opening the door. You open the door. I'm not opening the door. Well, somebody has to open the door. I mean, that's literally what I would be going through if it were Jesus out there. And I'd be thinking, did I clean? Did I clean? Did I clean? <laughs> are there dishes in the sink? Oh, my goodness, it's Jesus. Am I even dressed? 
forgetting that I'm wretched, miserable, naked, blind, and poor, and he knows anyway. I can just, can you picture that happen? And so somebody finally gets the guts to open the door. And maybe it's a little six-year-old who's like, oh, it's Jesus, you want to see my room? Because <laughs> six-year-olds would do that. And you're like, it's Jesus in the house. It's Jesus. And he's got blazing eyes. And his face is lit up like the sun. And he has white, white hair that's shining and brilliant. And his feet are like glowing bronze. This is the Jesus in chapter 1. And he's in your house. What just happened to lukewarm? Is anything in your house lukewarm right now? Not a thing. Not a thing. And so I realized that when Jesus comes and knocks and we open the door, lukewarm ceases to be an issue. We either shut the door in his face or we open him and something shifts. But lukewarm isn't on the table anymore. And so we get this invitation continually to say, Jesus, I want your presence. I might be feeling a little bit lukewarm right now, but can you shift me out of that? And it almost sounds too good to be true, but this picture is throughout scripture of God coming to us and eating with us. Think about all the people that Jesus ate with in the gospels. Think about him saying to the tax collector, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for dinner. And that Zacchaeus got down out of the tree. He ran. He prepared dinner. He had dinner for Jesus, full of sinners, full of laughter, full of good fellowship, full of who knows what. And after the dinner, Zacchaeus went and he started giving away his wealth and paying it back. It wasn't a lecture from Jesus. It was his presence. Zacchaeus switched from being somebody who said, I have acquired wealth, to somebody saying, my heart is different now. Some commentators have looked at this with Jesus knocking and said, you know what? That sounds a whole lot like Song of Solomon. A whole lot like Song of Solomon where there's literally a verse saying, my beloved is knocking, open the door. Please open the door to me. We can't forget that Revelation ends with the bride and the church and the spirit saying, come. The bridegroom, come. Song of Solomon is not a stretch connected to the rest of the book of Revelation. And if even that doesn't convince us, remember what Jesus said the night before he died as he was sitting and eating that first remembrance supper, taking the body, taking the blood that was shed for him. We eat with Jesus all the time. And in that supper, he said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them. And we, my father and I, will come to them and make our home with them. That's John 14, 23. Jesus says, People who love me, obey me. That's where obedience comes from. And my Father and I will come and move in and make our home with you. And yes, we will sit with you at the table and we'll eat and we'll talk and we'll rescue you from what ails you. Notice what happens next. 
there is a promise that Jesus gives, and he says, you're going to overcome. And for the Laodiceans, overcoming might look like externally being less wealthy and accepted and acceptable than they were before Jesus came in and sat down. But internally, they're going to be wealthy. So overcoming might have shifted their external circumstances if they could no longer compromise with a trade guild in town, for instance, that was worshiping idols, and that was where part of their money came from. Who knows what would have had to shift if they had this internal shift going on. But this promise, Jesus says, it says in verse 21, he said, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with the Father on his throne. And I love that contrast between Jesus coming to our house and sitting with us at the table and eating and talking, and then he said, now you're going to come with me to my house, and you're going to sit with me on my throne, and you get to rule and reign with me. And so I can't, uh, we said that Jesus had nothing good to say about this church. I have to go back on that because Jesus, it doesn't matter that they're wretched and miserable and naked and poor and blind. Jesus is saying, I love you. That's the thing I'm going to commend. I love you. My love is taking care of all of that. That's why I'm rebuking. That's why I'm disciplining. It's because of love and you're going to get me. This is like... Um, this is like a reversal of the Cinderella story, where the prince doesn't come for Cinderella, the miserable yet internally wealthy one. The prince comes for the ugly stepmother and the ugly stepsisters and says, yeah, I see right through you. You're not as wealthy and charming as you think you are, and I don't care. I love you, and I'm coming for you. This is for you, too. And then you get to sit and you get to rule and reign with me forever. And then the letter ends with a thing that is in every single one of these letters. And to me, this is, it feels like the throwaway line because it's always there. But to me, this is the crux of the entire thing. It's a call to listen. It says, everyone, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And there is a real difference between hearing something and hearing it. This is a hearing it that lets it go inside, that lets it go to work on you, that opens the door, that responds. And this is where, man, this is where it often falters for us. We have hearts that want to respond, but I would say if there's a, usually when we look at the church at Laodicea, we say, well, the fault that we share with them is that we're too wealthy and too materialistic. And yes, that can be an issue. But I think there's an even bigger one sitting in our culture and among us. And that is that we have ears, but we are so distracted that we don't have space to listen. We actually live in an era where we have invented devices to continually fill our sound and our ears with thoughts and ideas and input and pictures. And Jesus is competing with all of that and saying, if you have ears, listen. If you have ears, listen. If you have ears, listen. And it seems so strange to say our biggest battle sometimes is simply paying attention 
We have a choice where our attention goes. And is it a, we're going to put it here on that screen, or am I going to put it over there with Jesus knocking? And it is a choice, and it is a hard choice. I don't want to make it seem like, oh, this is easy. Just make the choice. You'll be fine. We live in this culture. We all face it. It is a choice. I um, was processing this, and I was asking, okay, I know what it looks like to be in a terrible place where pain or suffering has gotten my attention, and I have no choice but to pay attention. That's why we often grow so much in hardship, pain, and suffering, because reality breaks in on us, and we don't have much choice. We either go under or we pay attention to Jesus, and when we do, we get transformed. Not when we go under, when we pay attention. We get transformed. But it's in the middle of ordinary life, when you kind of really are doing okay, that it is so hard to pay attention. And what does it even look like in there to buy from Jesus gold refined in fire that speaks to the purity of a refined purified life, white clothing that's not stained, righteous acts and deeds, salve to put on your eyes so you can actually see the way he sees. What does it look like to do that? Well, when I'm in doubt about that kind of stuff, I usually just go to Jesus and say, what does that look like? Jesus, how do I buy from you gold refined in fire? What does that look like? And he's been giving me some questions to ask. One of them is, and think of a situation that you might be in right now. And then just ask the question, Jesus, where's the gold sitting in this situation? That going through this is buying me and I'm going to come out wealthier on the other end than I went in. Because I'm with you in it. Just ask him. Or, Jesus, I'm not sure that I'm seeing clearly right now. I need your salve to put on my eyes so I can see this the way you see it. Just ask. If you know someone who seems to live that way, go and ask them, how are you doing that? What's it like? This is not an instant simple thing. It's a pressing in to opening the door again and again and again and again in everyday life. And so I said, well, God, I know what it looks like in hardship or in the things where I don't know what to do, but what about when I really am saved? I'm kind of good. And he's like, well, where are you in life right now really saying, I'm kind of good. This is, I'm fine. I don't need anything. And I, I had this very simple thing come to mind. I'm in the middle of recovering my dining room chairs right now, taking off the old fabric, putting on new fabric. It's fun. I'm good. I don't need anything. This is a minor thing I am not suffering. And Jesus was like, ask me the questions about that. And I'm like, what? Okay. What's the gold in here? <laughs> How can I come out wealthier? How can I see this the way you see it? And one of the things he said is the first thing you do to open the door to me is you start getting thankful for this situation and the goodness in it. So start telling me how thankful you are. And I was like, oh, and even occurred to me to thank you for the fun of getting to do this. And then he said, I see some things about this that you don't see about yourself. I have some salve for your eyes. There are ways you have thought connected to this that you're not thinking right now. And this ties into 
gee, it's old furniture. I want to replace it. I don't like it. Am I going to be content? What am I going to do with it? Can I, you know, all of that stuff. And he said, I see what you would have been thinking five years ago. Can we clean up those mindsets so you can move forward out of this with a pure heart? It's a small, small thing, but I have the choice of saying, am I going to press in and open up those ways of thinking and say, yeah, I really am going to hand those over to you and I'm going to walk out with thankfulness? Or am I going to say, no, I'm good. Pay attention. Pay attention.